Exodus chapter 3 tonight. So um, super excited just to continue and uh, march through the life of Moses and, and the Exodus and the children of Israel. And again, as we know, um, we, we want to keep in context the idea that the, the entire Old Testament is an index finger that points to the cross. And everything in the Old Testament points to the cross. Everything in the New Testament points back to the cross. Jesus said on the road to Emmaus, he said that beginning at Moses, he, he opened the scriptures to him and explained to them all the places that, that spoke of him. And so the entire Old Testament speaks of Jesus. It's prophecy of Jesus. It's testimony of Jesus. The children of Israel is a, is a, is a life picture and, and, a, and, a, and a picture painted and woven so masterfully by a creator God who, who wove our lives this side of the cross and, and, and on the other side of the cross and everything that they went through, everything that they faced is, is exactly a picture of spiritual life on this side of the cross. Some of the variables change. You know, they fought literal giants. Goliath was a human being that was 10 feet tall. And we don't fight Goliaths with swords, but we, we have principalities and powers. And we fight um, spiritual hosts in heavenly places. And, and we have those same battles. They, they saw more miracles than anyone ever in human history. And yet, it didn't seem to, to change their life. It didn't seem to, to really help them get it. They, they still struggled. And how do you, you know, wouldn't you say to yourself, how do you, how do you stand at the edge of the Red Sea, and you're going to die unless God shows up and does something miraculous? And the next thing you know, Moses puts his staff down, or raises his staff in the, the Red Sea parts, and you walk through the Red Sea on dry land. You get on the other side and God begins to lead the children of Israel with the pillar of fire at night and a cloud in the day. How do you walk under a cloud that God leads in your life? And then you get hungry and you say, God, we want some, some food. And swarms of quail just start flying into the camp this high. And you walk over and you whack them. And the, the guy that, that, that gathered the least gathered huge barrels of quail. And, and, then, and then doubt that God's going to show up and do something in your life. And you look at the children of Israel and these stories and you think that. And then God says, wait a minute. And he reminds you of what he's doing in our life today. And the signs of the times that we live in. And, and, and the many things that are happening. And we're no different. We're no different. It's a, it's a picture of spiritual life today. And we live much the same way. And, you know, even now as, as you know, we, we watch our news feeds and... We watch the news and we pay attention to what's going on. You know, the one that's made a lot of waves lately is, have you guys been following the whole earthquake phenomenon that's been going on over the last three weeks? Amazing, amazing stuff that's been going on over the last three weeks with, with tremors and earthquakes. And Jesus said that in the last days that earthquakes would increase in frequency and, and in severity. And we've had such a spike. I mean, like, since the beginning of human history, just in the last three weeks in earthquakes and uh, Angel and, and his wife was telling me they're getting ready to go to Yellowstone. I said, oh, I hope it doesn't erupt while you're there. But the reality is, it's not going to matter, right? I, I, if it erupts, I guess I want to be there because it's just going to be like 30 minutes later before it lands in Tooele because it, it's going to wipe out half the United States when it goes off. And I don't think that stuff's going to happen, my personal opinion, and it doesn't mean anything. I don't think those major catastrophes are going to happen before the Great Tribulation. I think some of those things God is is preparing to begin and to be used and described in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. You know, there was a Perry Stone. I don't know if you guys ever heard the name Perry Stone, but he's one of those word faith evangelists and prophets. And he actually has a few little things I like. Um, and, and, but most of the stuff you gotta, 
got to chew up and spit out the trash, you know, spit out the bones. And, but he, he's, he's come out and, and recently and said he's had this second major dream of this tsunami earthquake, uh, tsunami that's going to hit the West Coast. And you don't need to have a dream to, to know that a tsunami is going to hit the West Coast. The, the two of the largest faults in the world line the, the entire West Coast of the United States. You know, the one San Andreas and the movie San Andreas that, about that earthquake fault going off from L.A. to San Francisco. The reality is the bigger fault is the one that's um, the Cascade, which is in Washington state. And that one's way bigger than, and that's the one that's going to, you know, wipe out the entire state of Washington and Oregon and who knows how far it's going to come in. And they say it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And so, so those things are, are going to happen. And so the, the point being, not, not to get lost in what the point is, the point being that, that we see things and, and we, we can identify with the children of Israel. And now I think that, you know, there's a lesson in this that we, we don't want to fall into the same pitfalls that they fell in. Because eventually what happened to the children of Israel? They wandered around the wilderness for 40 years until they died. And then Joshua and Caleb and the next generation went in and took the promised land because of their unbelief. And as much as God poured out in their lives and as much miracles and things that God did. And, you know, w- you know, when we were looking at, you know, September of 2016 as being a very interesting time of the year and God used it. It was cool. You know, God, Jesus didn't come back and, you know, it doesn't, didn't change anything, but there, there was tons of stuff that were going on and tons of, of biblical events on biblical proportions that, that had everybody's antennas up, you know, and, and as we looked at all those events and we're, we're not rocked that it, that it didn't change, but all those things going on in our lives on a constant basis, on an everyday basis, and, and just a reminder. You know, I was just in Israel. We were just in Israel, as you guys know. And one, I think one of the most impactful things for me while I was in Israel is when I stood at the empty tomb. And right before you, we went to the empty tomb, you go, to, you go in the old city of Jerusalem, and you go through one of the traditional sites. And it's a Catholic site, and it's called um, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And it's this big, huge um, church on multiple levels, and it's 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 opulent and it's full i mean just from they're, they're laying on top of each other the graven images the idolatry the symbols the stuff the you know and, and you just got to see a picture of it i showed you some the other day but there's there's a stone there and they believe three things happened there that jesus was wrapped there that the place where his cross entered the earth where his cross was on the earth is there and where he rose again that is his tomb was in this this little short little area there that's all encased with inside this church called of the Holy Sepulchre. And there's people and they're laying on the on the thing and kissing the stone and you pay a buck and you wait in this line for two hours and you can go and, and, and touch and kiss the place where there's a hole in the ground where they believe that's where the cross was and went around the thing. And none, none, of, it's, none of it really fits the biblical narrative because the, the, the place of the skull where Jesus was crucified, as the Bible tells us, is... 500 yards from there, 700 yards to the north of that. And, but, but we stood. And so you have this place where all these people come. And then you go to the actual place. There's an actual garden tomb. And it's exactly what the Bible describes. And from the garden tomb, you can, you can look out. And, and what's today is a, is a Muslim um, bus stop, an Arab bus stop. And so it's a bus depot. They got all kinds of buses in there where they're working on them. There's a garage there. There's a driveway there. It's all paved. That's probably the area where where the cross was and where Jesus actually um, was in the backdrop to it is the place of the skull and and where Golgotha is and so um, you go there and and in and in the in the 
Church of the Holy Sepulchre, it's, like I said, it's covered in graven images and it's people worshiping the stones and the spots. And, you know, we don't, we don't worship an area. Not, not, not one time in Israel do you worship an area or a holy site that you go to. We worship a risen uh, Savior, right? We worship Jesus. You know what? They, they, they used to have this thing where, you know, somebody had the cross, the actual cross that, that, that Jesus was hung on. And they were, they were selling slivers of the cross, little tiny toothpicks of the cross. And they sold so many of those slivers, you could have made like 400 crosses. But they made a lot of money. And people bought them and they worshipped them. And, they, you know, and, and we don't have those things. You know, we don't have a lot of the artifacts, the actual things. Because God knows our tendency and people's tendency to worship those things. And, and there's no power in that. There's power in the name of Jesus. There's power in, in believing. There's power in faith. And there's no power in those things. But the, the most impactful thing for me um, in Israel, one of them, is I stood in the garden tomb. And, and, and we don't know. There, there could have been other garden tombs very similar in the same area. We know we're in the general area. We know we're on planet Earth within a couple football fields area of where Jesus' tomb was. Was this the actual tomb or not? Nobody can be definitive. Um, you feel like it is. You just, you just kind of know that you're in this, the right spot and that God preserved it for a reason. And the British own it, and it's, and it's a garden. And, and there's a tomb there where a rich person would have had a tomb. And there's a, a trough where the stone would have rolled. And, you, you, I mean, you can see the skull and the cross. And over the years, the, the, the nose bone of the skull. And you guys might have seen it online or pictures of the place of the skull. And it's just the side of a mountain in Israel near, near where the temple would have been. And, and in the side, you can see it just looks like a skull. Just naturally, the rocks form. It looks like a skull. But over the years, some of the, the, the rocks that would form kind of the nose and eye kind of break have, have eroded. So it's lost its a little bit of its... So they show you a picture of what it looked like 40 years ago or 50 years ago, 100 years ago. And you could see very distinct. And you still can. And you stand there. But to stand in the place of the cross... Oh, sure, if you want. Yeah. Um, to stand there at the empty tomb, at the garden tomb... The, the British have owned it for 120 years. They've never charged anybody a dollar to enter that place. It's welcome. It's free. And, and it's like Jesus has, and God has kept the place where he was. Oh, there's, there's the place of the skull there. So the, this is the, the eyes here. You see cross there. And so the, the, the rocks that were right in the middle. Can you see where I'm pointing at? The hole there would be the nose, kind of down here is the mouth. Um, those are the rocks that have eroded. That's what it, that, that's an actual picture of two weeks ago when we were there. Um, not sure what that is. Oh, that's um, there's is that the tomb? The the tomb there is a good picture of it. So when you stand there, it's like Jesus has an invitation to the entire world, and not one person is going to be without excuse on Judgment Day because you can go to the place where they laid him and he's not there he's risen and he's preserved it he's protected it and he's made it free so you're without excuse lest you might be able to say well i didn't have the two bucks to get in no it was no didn't charge you anything to get in you're free to come in and see the place where 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 the tomb was and it's empty so chapter three says now moses was tending one more thing really quickly (laughs) <laughs> Quickly, I promise on this one. We, you know, the, the cool thing I think, and again, one of the things I appreciate and I've enjoyed through our study in First and Second Samuel, uh, we did First and Second Samuel already. We've done Genesis. Now we're in Exodus. Um, the the characters that we meet along the way, such a cool thing, just to read the stories. Like we know, 
about Joseph and his coat of many colors. We know about the different stories. We know about Daniel, the lion's den, and when we get to it. But when, we, when you read it, when we kind of slow down and go through it, these characters come to life, and we get to kind of know some of their personalities, some of their strengths, some of their weaknesses, and that, that's been a huge blessing through our study in the Old Testament. Verse, chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jeff, Jeff, Jethro, Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock back to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. So God got Moses' attention. Moses had been at this point now, um, how many years in, in, in Midian, in the backs in the desert? 40 years, right? Real easy. 40, 40, 40. Moses' life breaks up into three easy 40-year sections. 40 years in the finest things that Egypt and the world has to offer and the finest schools and, and, and training and traditions and eateries and everything and clothing and, and jewelry and, and everything the world has to offer. The finest of everything for 40 years. And then 40 years um, in the desert. You know, it feels like, anybody ever felt like God took you to the desert for 40 years and left you there? <laughs> the back of the desert. I felt like that. He took me from L.A. to Yucca Valley and left me there for 17 years. <laughs> like he forgot me here. It was kind of cool the day that the burning bush showed up and I, I got to leave, you know. But um, but this bush is on fire and it's not consumed and it gets Moses' attention. And God is going to speak to Moses through the burning bush. And so Moses goes to the bush and Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Somebody say, Hanani. Hanani. Come on, say it like you mean it. Hanani. That's the Hebrew for here am I. So when, when the Lord said to Isaiah, you know, Isaiah says to the Lord, here am I, Hanani, send me. So when I, I told you guys before, when I had Hebrew class in Bible college, a Hebrew teacher would, when, when he'd take role, you had to say Hanani, which is here am I. And this is the Hebrew phrase that's a, that's a very um, powerful phrase in the Hebrew in, these, in the lives of Moses and in Isaiah and in you and in me. And when God comes and God says to you, you know, I have a call for your life, is the response Hanani, here am I, send me? Or, or is it as kind of Moses is going to get to here in a minute, Hanani, send somebody else. And that, that's what Moses said. So Isaiah says, Hanani, send me. And, and Moses says, Hanani, send, send, send Trenton. He'll do it better than me. Send somebody else. And Moses said, oh, nope. Verse 5, then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet. The place where you stand is holy ground. And so for whatever reason, God asked Moses to take his shoes off because the place where he stood was holy ground. You know, the interesting thing about the bottom of your feet is what? That's probably the dirtiest part of your body, to be honest. Or one of the dirtiest spots of your body is, is the bottom of your feet. And, and, and yet God said to, that, that he wanted Moses to put the bottom of his feet. Maybe that's why all the hippies take their shoes off all the times. And Caleb didn't wear any shoes on Sunday. And, and something holy or wholesome about it, right? And, and so he tells Moses, take your, your shoes off. For the place where you stand is holy ground. And, and God wants to meet him there. And doesn't want anything in the way. Anything separating Moses from the Lord and from this meeting. And so he tells him to take his sandals off. And moreover, he said, 
I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses did his and Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look upon God. And so when Moses realized it was the Lord, he hid his face. And I love the way that God introduces himself to Moses um, personally for the first time. One of, one of my favorite names of God. And we're going to get into the name of God and the names of God tonight because this is where it's introduced to us in the Bible. But he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's the God of people. And we studied in depth the life of Schmuck, right? We all know that's Jacob, right? He wasn't a... He wasn't a highlight character in the Bible. His life is full of, full of messes and full of mistakes and sins and struggles and lacks of faith. And yet God still identifies himself as the God of Jacob. And you know what? God's plan and God's will is, is, is going to be accomplished in your life and my life. You know, Lydia had a conversation with somebody today about Tamar. And Tamar is, is one of the, the women that's mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. And she you know, wasn't the nicest lady and didn't, didn't make the wisest choices for herself. And God still used her. And so the name of God that he introduces himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I love that. I think he could be the, you know, insert your name there. God is the God of these people. And so it goes on and it says, so I have come down. What am I at? Seven. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. And have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So the, the word heard there in the Hebrew, it, it's, it's not just like you and I just hear something with our ears. This, this is much deeper. God feels their pain. He knows their, he knows their toil. He's with them at night. He's with them when they struggle. When he hears their pain, it's very intimate. It's very personal. And when God hears your pain and feels your pain and hears your prayers, he, he feels and knows it very intimately. You know, and, and in a way only God can know you and know it. And he said, I know their sorrows. And he's not forgotten them. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and the Termites and the flashlights and the so all of these ites i'm going to count them canaanites hittites amorites parasites hivites jebusites and there was one other that makes seven nations that 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 god removed we we talked about it last week i'll just mention it now because god mentions it um but god gave the the these ites nations the canaanites who he's going to eventually eradicate um genocide through Saul and the Amalekites who were part of that. Um, and God gave them 400 years to repent. And God, God gave them opportunity after opportunity. And it says in Genesis chapter 15, in verse 15 and 16, it says that, that for 400 years, God's mercy and grace, and it got to the point where they became rabid. It got to the point where they became um, cancerous and, and that God did judge them. But before, first he gave them 400 years. And not only did he give them 400 years for, the, for them to repent and turn, but, but it was really a blessing because the nation of Israel was 70 people, 75 people when they got to Egypt. And Egypt was a place where God could care for his people, a place where they were going to be safe from all of these pagan nations and all of these pagan armies, a place where, where they were going to be cared for and where they could grow and flourish. And so it was a blessing for the, the nation of Israel to go from 75 to the you know, conservative 2 million 
that left Egypt. So two things were happening. God was growing his people. He was, he was protecting them. And, and then they, they fell into hardship. And they, were, they weren't um, slaves in Egypt for the entire 400 years. But for a lot of that, they were. And it got to the point where God says he heard their cry. And he was going to come and deliver them. And it says, come now in verse 10. Therefore, I will send you to the Pharaoh that you may bring my people to the children of Israel. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Do do you remember? um, It took 40 years for God to change Moses's heart. It it says that when he went out and he was at 40 years old, he saw the, the Egyptian hurting the Hebrew and he killed the Egyptian thinking that the people of Israel would understand that God would deliver them. And, and, and he, was, he was very gung-ho, and he was young, and he was arrogant, and he wasn't humbled at that point in his life. And, and he went out and he killed the Egyptian, thinking that they would understand, and, and that you know, he was ready to roll. And here I am, God, I'm, I'm your guy, let's go, let's do this, I'm going to kill this Egyptian, and you know, you're going to deliver your people, you, you can use me, I'll, I'll, I'll lead this charge, let's do it. And he wasn't ready, it wasn't time. So, so instead, God said, okay, i got a different plan. Why don't you go herd some sheep for 40, for 40 years in the wilderness and, and, until you're content to do that? Until you can say, God, I will stay here and I will herd sheep for you. Now, now Moses was the most humble man that, in human history. How do we know that? He told us. Real humble guy, right? Kind of takes a little bit of a way if he has to tell us, but he records it. But the whole, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Moses was a humble guy. was very humble. And he wasn't always very humble. He was a general in Pharaoh's army. He was a decorated soldier. He was wealthy. He was popular. He was powerful. He, he killed this Egyptian with, you know, no, no worries, no struggle. It wasn't a fight. He was a tough dude. He was a man's man. And, and now he comes 40 years later and God retrains him. And God, God has to break him. You know, I was... In Bible college, one of the amazing things that happens in Bible college with the Bible college that I went to, we called it the school of the spirit. And we've seen lots of people come and go and lots of people um, get trained up for ministry and and go out and serve successfully in ministry. And others who um, never went anywhere, they flunked out, they failed, they got bitter. And here's what happens. You, you develop a bitterness in your heart towards um, lots of things. And, and you have to deal with that bitterness. And some of the students dealt with it and gave it to the Lord and grew through it. And, and others would struggle. And one of the things that would happen, and the Bible college never set this up intentionally. It's just the school of the Spirit. It's just the way that Holy Spirit was raising and training through a servanthood program. And one of the most powerful things about just having the kids serve and, and work like slaves is, is that they're going to get the lesson that Moses got of humility and of, of having to know that, you, you know, are you willing to serve God no matter what? And so we would get tasks. And oftentimes the way they would go is, you guys are not off until all of these jobs are done. And there would be 10 of us, you know, on big campus. And so three of us would, would really work hard and we would do all the jobs. And then the other seven would work really hard at not working and hiding. And they were really good at uh, having, you know, counseling with somebody or talking to somebody and, you know, hiding in the back of the bus or sleeping or you know, it was always the, the, the same people. And then you get really upset and the hard workers and, and the ones that eventually just said, God, I'll do all this work every day. I'll clean the bathrooms every day. I'll do it as unto you. And, and I'll, if this is what you want me to do until you return, God, I'll do it unto you. And when you, when you, when you, when you can say that and mean it, then God changes your life and changes your heart and you're successful. 
And, and it's unfortunate. I've seen tons of talented kids. I've seen tons of, um, you know, kids that had a call of God on their life, and they just never got that. They just, just could never get their eyes off of the injustices and the, the unfair, and, and they had to work harder than everybody else. And, you know, they didn't want to be cleaning bathrooms anymore. They cleaned enough bathrooms. They've been cleaning bathrooms for a year. And isn't it time for them to have someone else clean the bathroom so they can graduate to sleep, sweep in the sidewalks? That was the next best job. You went from toilets to sidewalks, so that was pretty good. And, um, but you had to get to that point. You know, Pastor Gerald had a, had a similar experience in Bible college. And he was in a very, that's why he set up the Bible college the way he did, because that's the way he went to school. And his was four years. He was a janitor for four years. And his story, true story, funny story, he was in the bathroom and he was cleaning a urinal and he was down over the urinal cleaning it. And he, and he started, God just came over him and he really started bawling. And he just said to God, he said, God, I will clean, I will clean these toilets until you return if this is what you want me to do. David said, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than dwell in the tents with the wicked. And God, I'll serve you forever in this ministry if this is what you want. And, um, and not only that, I'll have the cleanest toilets and the cleanest restrooms in any ministry and church in the world, you know. And, and he just gave it to the Lord. And he struggled with that four years. And, at the, and he walked out of the bathroom and wiped his tears off his eyes. And the, the senior pastor was walking by. And he said, oh, Gerald, hey, I've been meaning to tell you. I've been meaning to find you for like weeks. I have a, I have a Bible study in India I want you to start teaching. <laughs> and it was like, you know, it was like it, it just took that. And, and thankfully, God, God did it for him. But he had to get to that point where he was willing. And so for Moses, there had to be this break. There had to be this heart that was willing to serve no matter what. And fi- Moses was finally broken. And so he said in verse 12, I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign that you have sent, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So the... Um, the key to ministry, the key to life is, is what God tells Moses right here. What does he say to him? I will certainly be with you. What, what can you do in God's name? Absolutely anything if God's with you. What can you do in God's name if God's not with you? Nothing. You can't do anything. And, 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 and I've shared this a million times, you guys. It's not the most important thing. It's way past the most important thing. It is the only thing. It is everything. It is, it is better than the only thing and everything. I don't have words to describe the, the, the importance of this concept that, that God's presence is everything. If God is in it, it's going to happen. If God is, is directing and leading and calling you know, and all these people, and multiple times in Moses' life, he's going to come to this, this, this place where he just stops and he says, God, I, I'm not going to go unless you go with me. And God says, I'm with you. I'm going to go before you. Moses, I'm with you. And, and so I can remember one of my pastor friends and, you know, and just sharing about um, preaching and teaching and um, being nervous and getting up. And, and, and he said everything changed in his life. And when God spoke to him very clearly one day and he said, I'm standing right next to you. And if Jesus is standing right next to you, you can do anything. And so when I go to prepare to preach and teach, like even with this weekend coming up, you know, it's a big weekend and I want to serve God. I want to, you know, I want to preach. I really just want to preach and, and see people's lives changed. But is that going to happen based on the, the message that I've been preparing and the Bible study that I laid out? Nope. No matter what it is or how good it is, or if I preach like they're doing in the youth group right now, it it ain't going to matter. 
Well, the only thing that's going to change, the only thing that's going to happen is if God's Holy Spirit shows up, if Jesus is standing next to me, if God shows up and rocks a house and does something amazing. And so this is the first thing God tells Moses in this part here. He said, I will be with you. When Moses said, God, I can't do it, God said, I'll be with you. I'll take you. I'll carry you. Same thing for your kids, right, Dad? I can't do it. I'll be with you. I'll stand right next to you. I'll hold the seat until you're not looking. And I'll let go. And you'll be riding on your own. You won't even know it. But I'll be right there with you. And then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? What a, what a great question. So I guess Moses here is he's starting now to entertain the idea or the fact or he's accepting the call. And he told God, God, I, 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 can't, I don't want to go or I can't go. Who am I to go? And God said, I'm going to go with you. And he said, okay, Lord, but when I go, they're, they're going to they're gonna ask me. And I, I can't just go and say, God told me. Because the, really, and we have to be careful too, right? And that's why God introduced himself already as I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in the world we live in, when you say God to somebody, that can mean a lot of things, right? If you say to a Muslim, you know, I, I, I love God, they, they'll say, I love God too. Allah. Or if you say, you know, I love God to, you know, an Egyptian in that day, God was Ra. There was a God Ra that they served. And, and they called him God. It was God. And so God can mean a lot of things. There's lots of gods with little g's and one God with a big G. And so oftentimes, even, you know, in, in, in talking to people, you know, I've talked to um, some LDS people. And, you know, I was trying to share with this kid at, at work one time about, you know, that I relate to God based on um, relationship and not not service and not not duties and not religion and not, you know, works. And he asked me a question and he said, well, how, how do you how do you do? You know, how do you what did he say? How did you how do you? Um, do that with Heavenly Father. And, and so I, I started answering him and I started telling him about spending time and personal and later I'm like, duh. Like, like I blew that. You know, I really needed to make a distinction. I, I, don't, I don't serve your, what you call Heavenly Father. That's not my God. That's, that's not the description nor the God that I serve. And, and I, don't, I don't do anything with the one you call Heavenly Father but with, you know, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with Jesus. This is what I do and this is how I communicate, how I relate to him. And um, so needing to be a, a distinction of who God was. And Moses would have understood this philosophically, theologically. It would have been innate in him that there's lots of gods. And I'm not just going to go to Pharaoh and say, God. And they're going to say, which God? Who is he? What's his name? Ra, the, 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 the God of the rivers. You know, there was 10 major gods or deities that were served in Egypt. And when we get into the 10 plagues, we'll see all 10 of them. And each one of the plagues, the ten plagues of Egypt, is designed very specifically to show God's um, superiority and His dominance over the ten gods that were worshipped in Egypt. Ten primary gods. I'm sure there's plenty others. And so Moses says, what, what should I tell him? What is your name? And so he said, my name is John Joseph Jingleheimer Smith. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. He, he didn't have a, a, a name like that, like a name that you would expect a a God to have? It, he said, what is his name and what shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. So, so the very name of God. So, so much in this verse right here in what God says. The first time God tells us what his name is. So God, again, is a title, right? God is a, but it's not his name. You know, it's who he is, God with a big G, but his, his name, 
is when, when Moses asked, I am that I am. We know in the Bible, right, we have tons of names of God, titles of God. The Lord um, Jehovah Tidzkanu, Jehovah Jaffa, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah um, Kinesi, Jehovah Tidzkanu. Um, all of these different aspects and attributes of God and His character and who He is. And everyone carried in this I am. And he said, you know, I am, and I am who I am, and my son, Messiah Jesus, is going to fill in the blanks of, of who I am. I am means that, you know, in Jesus and John, right, all the way through the whole, the whole gospel of John, there's these seven I am statements of Jesus. I am the bread of the life. I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. I am the way, the life, and the truth. I am the resurrection and the life. And every one of those begin with this great I am, ego, ami statement. Jesus told, in claiming his deity in the New Testament, he uses this same title of God here. Jesus said to the Pharisees, before Abraham was, ego, ami, bringing them right here to the burning bush. And he said, before Abraham was, I am. And what does it say? They picked up rocks to stone him. And the reason why they picked up rocks to stone him is because they understood that he was claiming to be God. He was saying that he was identifying himself with the God who appeared to Moses in the burning bush and said his name was I Am. So the name of God, what is the name of God? I Am. So the, the, the actual name of God here in the Hebrew is, is four Hebrew letters. You'll see it often. So this is YHVH. We call this the Tetragrammaton. Whenever you see in the Bible, it's tons of times, 6,800 times in the Bible, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's, that's the name here. That's the name of God. And, and we don't know how to pronounce that name. The, when the Hebrews would write and say the name of God, they, they would leave out the pauses which would give us the the vowel sounds in his name, and all we got were the consonants. And, and there's no vowels in Hebrew. And, and not that there's no vowel sounds, but there's no vowels. There's pauses in, the, in it that, that you fill in, and it makes the sound. So my name, my middle name is David, and when I was in Israel, I got a ring with my name on it. And it, it was just three um, Hebrew letters that one made the sound of our English D, V, and D, David. But, but the, there was no A and I in the name David. King David, it's DVD. Hey, DVD. So DVD, and and, and so in God's name, the, the those sounds or those pauses were left out because the name of God was so holy that the Jews didn't want to mispronounce or mip, misrepresent the name of God, and it's been lost over the years. And we don't know. We don't know what those missing letters are, and everybody wants to fight that they have it right. And you know, the Jehovah Witnesses claim that the 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 name of God, the YHVH. Jehovah is pronounced Jehovah. And that's why they're Jehovah Witnesses. And they make a big deal about the name. and about. But the, the problem with that is there's no J sound in Hebrew. Jesus is Yeshua. Jerusalem is Yerushalayim. There's no J sound in, in Hebrew. So it, it can't be Jehovah. You know, we use that. And there's nothing wrong when we say the name for, you know, we know what we're saying. And we're, we're using this name of God, the, ca- the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the Yahweh, the YHVH in Hebrew, the, um, the name of God. Um, some say Yahweh, you know. problem with Yahweh is there's also no W sound or way, wah, wah sound in the Hebrew. So that's not it. So we really don't know. 
Have you guys ever read any Jewish literature? And they write God and they write G line D. You ever see that? They don't, they don't actually put the, they don't write the name of God. And again, it's, it's a matter of reverence. It's a matter of, of not wanting to, to defame or disrespect or to misuse or mishandle the name of God. And, and literally, they would write one letter. And then there was this whole process of writing the name of God. You'd write one letter. And then like an hour later, because you'd go and you'd take a bath and you'd wash and you'd do all these ceremonially things. And you'd come back and you'd write the next letter. And then you'd go start the process over again. Imagine it'd take you like four hours to write four words, four letters. And if you made a mistake somewhere along the way or missed the line, you scrapped it all and you started over. The, um, the God says in, this is something we got while we were in Israel. I was just going to show you guys. I think I showed you guys last week, but I'll explain it to you really quickly. But um, So the Yahweh or the YHVH, in Jeremiah, God says that he would write his name. It says, but, na- but go now to my place, which is in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first. And so from the creation of, of human history, or from creation of the world, when God created the world, he, he says from Jeremiah, where I set my name at the first, where I wrote my name um, in Shiloh. And so um, this is just discovered because of satellites and imagery. And so, you know, in the last... Um, hundred years we have this technology that we would have never had before and so this is a picture it's going to be hard to see but this is an aerial photo of the land of israel so um in this red dot right here that's jerusalem that's where the uh holy of holies is that's where the temple is and then you guys can you see this white this yellow box here there's that yellow box there and and the hebrew reads backwards but right in the mountain is the name of God. And guess where this area is? In Shiloh. This is what Shiloh is. And so God said, I will write my name in Shiloh. And so obviously if you're standing in this big, you know, canyon and these little mountain hills or whatever they are, valleys, I don't even know what to call them, you, you, you wouldn't be able to see that. But with this aerial photo, you can see where God literally wrote his name. And this is the, the Hebrew um, Yad Vehaveh. The YHVH in Hebrew, where he wrote his name in Shiloh. They they were um, they had taken an, some aerial photos of of the land, and they were making um, some wallpaper um, for some some place in Israel. And so the guy who was actually pasting the wallpaper, you know, he's he's putting it on the wall, and this he comes to this section, and you know. For somebody who's Hebrew, it's just plain as day. They can see the letters written right in there. And the, the fulfillment of this verse, the name of the Lord. And so he says, I am who I am. You know, I used to love Pastor Chuck Smith's definition of the name of God. He said, the name of God, the I am that I am, means literally the becoming one. So I am um, the becoming one. So what is the need that you have? You know, each one of us came in here today, right? And I always pray this for us. That, that, that he, we each came with a different need, a different desire. And just as I, I went through, you know, seven or ten of the names of God, the Lord is our healer, he's our provider, the Lord is our peace. The, and, and so for each one of us, we need something different. The Lord, our healer, he's the great doctor, the great physician. Sometimes you need a healing. Sometimes you need peace. Sometimes you need assurance. 
And, and so the Lord becomes for you what your need is, and that's carried in His name, the great becoming one, or the becoming one. I am that I am, and that's, that's different at times, but it's, it's all-encompassing for whatever you need. God is, I am who I am. Kind of sounds almost just like, like take it or leave it type of talk, huh? I am who I am. It is what it is. You know, and, and really that's that's kind of the reality of God, you know, and he, and thankfully for us he's 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 in such a, a loving way and he's done it in such a kind, gentle way. But you know, the bottom line is you could tell somebody you, you really don't I know I don't tell people this all the time, but the reality is sometimes maybe I want to or I could or maybe I should tell them. You, dude, you're not God. When you're God, you can do it however you want to do it. You can make the rules, you can make the laws, you can pick the, the, the but but you're not God and God is who he is and he can do it whatever he way he wants to do it, he's God. And that, that's the way he did it. So get a straw and suck it up. Build a bridge and get over it. You're not God. I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So when they ask, what is my name? Moses, you tell them, I am. Moreover, God said to, to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord your God. Father, fathers of God. Sorry, let me put this down. Flip it this way. Verse fifteen. Moreover, God said to Moses, "Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations." So this is God's name forever; it doesn't change. It was fulfilled in his son when Jesus said again, as we've already talked about, Jesus said multiple times, I am blank. I am, I am, I am. God is three in one, one God, and fulfilled and revealed in his son. And that, that, that's what God told Moses that, you know, that his son would reveal that. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and of Jacob appeared to me saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, really quickly about this term, a land flowing with milk and honey. Um, the, I think there were um, places, because when the children of Israel later, um, not much later than this, but they, they're going to go into the promised land and, and they bring back what? Cluster of grapes. And they're so large that it takes two men on horseback to carry these grapes back as a, as a sign of what was in the land. So, so the land at places and in, in things had potential to be a land flowing with milk and honey. But at the same time, uh, uh, most of the, the land that they would inherit was a desert. It was a wasteland. It was, there was nothing there. It had potential to flow with milk and honey. But just like it was a place where God gave them as an inheritance, they still had to go in and fight the giants and kill and war and battle and step out in faith. And, 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 and when God gives us something, it's, it's not always gift-wrapped for us. It's gift-wrapped in such a way that it's going gonna, it's gonna to change your life, it's going to help your life, it's going to build character in your life, and it's perfect according to God's will. But it's not always easy. That doesn't mean easy. That doesn't mean without challenges, without trials, without hard times and hardships. So a land flowing with milk and honey oftentimes is a land that had potential to flow with milk and honey. 
in, in, the, in, in Aliyah and in, in the going up and the return to Israel um, that started in 1948. When the Jews got back to Israel in 1948 and this entering in this promised land, it was a desert wasteland. There was nothing there. You know, you see some pictures from the late 1800s, some black and white photos, and it is a wasteland. And then you see pictures even from the 50s and when Israel first got there and when Jews were coming back to the land and it was, there was nothing. And it was just dirt. And it was ugly. And you, you go to those same places today and they're green and they're lush and they're safe and they're, they're flowing with milk and honey throughout all of the land of Israel. But they had to still go in and till the land. They still had to go and work with the sweat of their brow. And it says, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say... The Lord, what? 18. Then they will heed your voice and you shall come and the elders of Israel to the kings of Egypt. You shall say to them, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a, hand, by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. And so God gives Moses the fulfillment of this prophecy that what's eventually going to happen. Moses is not really sure how it's going to play out at this point. But there is the prophecy and God telling me exactly that Moses is, that Pharaoh is not going to let him go. And then eventually God will stretch out his hand and he will. In verse 21, and I will give his people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty handed. And we, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. So I don't know. You guys call it what you want. Again, you're not God. So you want to get offended that God stole all the Egyptian stuff when he left? But they did. That's, that's just the way God laid it out. But, you know, they, they worked and they, they worked with the sweat of their brow. They were not paid. They built cities. They built fortified cities. They built walls, possibly pyramids, um, and, and, and got paid nothing. And so it's like almost God was running a tab. And, they, and then they got back paid for all that stuff. And when they left, they went to their neighbors and um, their neighbors gave them gold and silver and things. And when they leave, they, they left with possessions and stuff that, you know, I'm sure they were going to need on the journey. Let's do four. And then Moses answered and said, but, but suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. So the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a rod. And he said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses fled from it. <laughs> Moses ran, little woman. I'm just kidding. He was afraid of snakes. I don't like snakes either, but I'll pick them up if I have to. Um, so, so, you know, one, one of the things here is God said to Moses, what is in your hand? Now, Moses is a shepherd in the wilderness of Midian. He didn't have a ton. He didn't have, you know, magic wand or a sword or... You know, he, he, he said, oh, I found this stick and I, I hit the wolves or the coyotes with it when they come and try to mess with the sheep or, you know, I use it to walk up the mountains or, you know, I talk to it at night when I'm alone out in the wilderness hanging out with sheep. You know, I, I got a stick. That's what I got. And, and so the Lord takes what's in his hand and he gives it to the Lord and God uses it. And that, that's oftentimes how God calls us. You know, God calls us to just take whatever it is that you have in your hand, whatever is in your possession, whatever is in your life and give it to him. And it can't be like, oh, well, I don't have enough. 
and all I have is this stick. And God says, oh, sorry, Moses, I wish you had some more talents and some cooler things than that stick in your hand because then I could have really used you. God says, no, take the stick, take what you do have and lay it at my feet, throw it down, give it to me, and, and I, will, I will bless it and I will use it. And then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his he- hand and caught it and it became a rod in his hand. So the Lord told, uh, you know, when I was a kid, we, if we ever, well, I wasn't a kid, I didn't catch too many snakes, I guess. I lived in L.A. It's not like we had snakes running through the alleys and down Manhattan Beach Boulevard or Hawthorne Boulevard. But when I moved to Yucca Valley, we had lots of, lots of snakes in the desert. And so I would, you know, sometimes if we'd, have, we'd get them in the school sometimes. Like they'd be on the, in the playground or on the outskirts or somewhere, you know, we'd get some snakes. And so we'd have to catch them. And you always catch a snake, you know, you try to grab a snake right by the back of its head so that you have a hold of its head so that it can't bite you, you know, and you get, you get, you get it that way. And this was, I don't know, a while ago. And then I started watching all these TV programs and all the professional snake, snake handlers, um, they always grab them by the tail. And they do this thing where they keep their head close to the ground. They kind of can control them that way. And, oh, I, I think it was uh, when What's-His-Name got popular. The Crocodile Hunter. Gail Irwin? Steve Irwin. <laughs> hey, you, you know where I'm coming from. Steve Irwin. Yeah, so when Steve Irwin was famous, he, you know, he was the first one, I think, that on TV was doing that stuff. And, and you notice that he was always handling snakes by the tail. And then since then, there's been some more shows and outdoor shows where you see people that handle snakes and the, all the professional ha- snake handlers they, they're all grabbing them by the tail and, but God told them way back in Exodus told Moses the right way to handle it. I guess that's the right way to do it to reach out and grab it by the tail and he said in verse 5 that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob and the God of Isaac has appeared to you Furthermore, the Lord said to him, Now put your hand in your bosom. And he put his hand in his bosom. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And he said, Put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in his bosom again and drew it out of his bosom. And behold, it was restored like his other flesh. Now God's just messing with him. (laughs) Put your hand in your pocket. Oh, take it out. Now it's got leprosy. Ah, Now put it back in. Pull it out. Throw your straw down. Turn it into a snake. But... You know, all these things are, they're nothing for God, right? But it, but it is God doing something for Moses just, just to increase his faith, to give him courage. Did God have to do either one of these things? H- had Moses stepped out and just didn't need those things? But you know what? God will do that. He will meet you where you are. He'll, he'll do things that, that you need him to do. Sometimes I think that in my life when, when God has to do something miraculous for me, it, you know, like I, I get bummed out almost sometimes like, God, I know you could have done that without having to hold my hand, without having to, you know, turn my rod into a snake. And um, and had I just had more faith, and had I believed, then, you know, it wouldn't have been necessary. And, you know, it's cool when God does miracles or God does something amazing, and he will. He'll meet your needs. And so for Moses, he needed, um, he needed, he needed some encouragement. And so God did that. And he's just showing him power. Like, leprous hand, what does that accomplish? It's to scare you for a while. Lord, are you going to fix that? <laughs> You know, I'm in trouble if you don't fix that. And so God is showing him that he's with him. He's showing him his power. And then it will be, if they do not 
if they do not believe you, nor heed the message of the first sign, that they may believe the message of the latter sign. And it shall be, if they do not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river and pour it on the dry land, and the water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. And then Moses said to the Lord, O O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since. You have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. What does it say in your margin there next to verse number 10? Or dull tongue cannot talk very well. I can so relate to this. You know, Moses, some people say he maybe had a speech impediment. Maybe he was like, Lord, Lord, I I, I shouldn't make fun of that, huh? Lord, I I can't talk. Or whatever it was. He had something. He was slow in speech. He couldn't talk. If he had a speech impediment, if he was nervous, if, you know, but basically he wasn't, he wasn't qualified. He wasn't gifted. He, he was available, but he, and he says to the Lord, I, I can't, I can't talk. And you know, it's like, that, that's just the reality, you know, and I tell the Lord all that time, you know, Lord, I can't, I can't talk. And, you know, I have times where I get super nervous and can't breathe and, you know, and, and just have to continually give that to the Lord where God just has to, has to do something and show up. And so the, the frailty, it was like the pastor who, you know, this young gun had got, pastor got a chance to preach his first sermon and, you know, he's all proud and excited and, you know, he's walking down the aisle and, you know, he's doing the hop step down the aisle and, you know, he's so arrogant and gets on stage and he's going to preach to everybody and drops his notes and spills his water on his Bible and he falls down and can't talk and he doesn't say anything right. And, you know, he goes walking out and some old guy in the back says, had you walked in like you walked out, your message probably would have been pretty good, you know, but... But that, and, and that's the thing, you know, God's not looking for the qualified, right? He's looking for the available. God takes our weaknesses and he can use them, but there's a bit of stepping out and, and just continue to put in their place. And I know for me, I know Lydia told me a hundred times and I just never got it until I got it. But she said, it's not about you. I, oh, I know it's about the Lord. It's about Jesus. And then, and then I really cared really how much people would like me or what I had to say or how what the message would be. And you know, I'd get under it and I'd get nervous about it. And, you know, I can remember the day, like, like the toilet experience, you know, where you just decided, okay, Lord, if I got to clean these toilets till you come back. And I can remember getting on stage one time and just really meaning it in my heart and telling God, if I go up and I completely stink and, and, and it's terrible and I can't breathe and it's awful. I don't care, Lord. I want to go. I'm going to do it unto you. I give it to you, God. And it's, it's about you anyways. And, and I really meant it that time. And like I said, Lydia had been telling me for years, it's not about you. And when I really got it, when it really clicked that it's not about me, and, and I could say to the Lord and mean it, God, I, it doesn't matter what happens. It's about you. I just want to serve you. I just want to be obedient. If you call me, you've given me this opportunity, then, then I'm going to go up. It started releasing, and it started getting better, and it started helping, and God, God took over at that point. But as, as long as I was getting in the way, and, and was, was, it was a matter of my ability and not God's presence, then 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 it didn't it didn't work you know until it had to be just about you know now there's only about one thing there's only one one prayer there's only one thing that i'm really concerned with and that's that god shows up and that god meets me and that i'm standing right next to you and so moses is going to struggle with this as you guys know a little bit more throughout his ministry even to the point where um god's not god's best will god's secondary will and and god allows uh, moses's um aaron Moses' brother, Aaron, to, to speak for him.
because of Moses' slow speech, his speech impediment, and, and this thing. But, but God says, let's see what God says to him. Verse 11, he says, So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute or the deaf or the seeing or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you will say. So powerful, so amazing, you know, and such, even for a preacher, for me, that's so huge that God says, just go. And I, I, I made your mouth. I can handle it. I made your fingers. I made your, I made your life. Do you not, I, I can do it. Go, I will take care of you. I will be with you and I will teach your mouth what to say. But he said, oh my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. And here's where he's like, okay, Lord Hanani, send somebody else. And Moses is like, Lord, just, I'm, I'm not eloquent of speech. I don't have gifts. I don't have talents. Lord, just send somebody else. Use, use somebody else. And, and, and I think when Moses said that, or I think the reason God called Moses was because of this very heart. And again, the God couldn't use him 40 years ago. Maybe the children of Israel were ready to be delivered 40 years before this, and, and Moses wasn't ready. And it took Moses 40 years to go from that arrogant kid who was ready to deliver the Israel um, in his own hands to this kid who, who, who legitimately tells God no, like, and, and is willing to walk away here and say, God, I, I'm, not, I'm not capable of doing this. I'm totally okay if you send somebody else. And, and oftentimes that's the heart that God needs. That's the heart that God's looking for, is the one that um, just understands that they don't have the ability to do it themselves. And, and you know, that was the whole thing with Gideon in the 300, right? They're way outnumbered. Gideon comes to the Lord and he says, God, we're way outnumbered. God says, you still have too many men. Tell them, tell them men that are scared to go home. And, and he whittles it down to 300 against 135,000 soldiers. And, and the whole point was God, God was going to do it. And he, and he didn't need guys that were talented or strong or brave. That, that, that would defeat the point of the story. He needed guys that, that knew they couldn't do it unless he showed up and did something amazing. And in verse 14, it says, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. So God's getting a little upset because God had already shown him miracles. God had already encouraged him. God told him, hey, I, I made your mouth. I'll tell you what to say. I'm with you. And then, and then Moses finally doubles down and says, send somebody else. And so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is not Aaron the Levite, your brother, I know, that he can speak well? And look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. And, and you shall take this rod in your hand with you. You shall do the signs. So God's going to allow Aaron to come and speak for Moses, not God's perfect will or not God's initial will, but God's secondary or his passive will, he allows Aaron to come and taggle along and speak for Moses. And so Moses went, and, and you know, God will do that. You know, I think sometimes, you know, God, God will allow somebody else. or God, God, God's will is going to be accomplished, whether you step up and you do it or whether somebody else does it. He's going he's gonna to do it. So it's, it's just you get to be a part. You know, here, and I, this is a great example, but it's true. The, you know, when Lydia and I got called here and we came and we had people that are in our church today and, and they literally were praying and asking God to start a Calvary Chapel here, start a church here, start a church that they could call home. And, and, and when we came and responded to that call, um, 
you know, God, God began to do a work in our church. There's people here in our church that um, three years ago, four years ago, had they died in a car accident, were going to hell and got saved and asked Jesus in their heart and their lives are changed, their eternity has changed. That, that wasn't dependent upon Lydia and I responding to the call to come to Tooele. God was going to save those people no matter what. He was just going to use somebody else if Lydia and I didn't come. I think you guys would sit in, be sitting in the same seats you're sitting in right now if, if Lydia and I didn't come. There'd just be somebody else standing here. And, and that God, God was going to do it. It was His will. It was His plan. And it was going to get accomplished. Or He would have put me in a belly of a fish and spit me out in the Salton Sea somewhere or the Great Salt Lake. And I would have got here one way or the other. But God's will was going to get accomplished. And so God, God was going to accomplish this. And so... Um, so I, I, my point is, you know, don't you want to be the one he uses? Do you want to step out and accomplish his will and just understand it's not about you. It's about God's will and he's going to get it done with or without you. And so what, what a privilege to be a part of it. And I, I really do, really do consider it a privilege to, to be called and to be a part of what God was going to do here anyways, with or without us. And so verse 18, it says, So Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law. And he said to him, Hey, man, we've got to have a little talk. <laughs> My life just completely changed, and uh, I don't think I'll be tending your sheep anymore. Um, I might be able to keep your daughters and my grandkids, your grandkids, and um, but the whole sheep herding thing, uh, that's, that's not going to happen anymore. Please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. Praise God. And now, now the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go return to Egypt for all the men who sought your life are dead. And then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey and returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand. And Aaron and the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand. So part of that stuff was training, the turning his hand and all that. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, I will kill your son, your firstborn. So that eventually is going to come to pass, right? In the Passover, the plague of the 10th plague. And it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. And then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he let him go. So he let him go. Then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. And the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him on the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron in the, the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. And then he did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed, and when they heard the Lord had visited the children of Israel, and that he had looked on their affliction, they bowed their heads, and they worshipped. And so the initial um, reception of Moses and Aaron was positive. And, and um, they, they received him, and he showed them the signs. And, and it's not going to stay that way all the time, but initial response was positive that God was with them, and it went on. So let's stand. Next week we'll... Uh, Pick up in chapter 5. I finished early tonight. Sunday school is not going to know what to do. It's like 8.45 last week. Let's pray.
Father God, we come before you and we thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for this day. And Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Moses and Aaron. And we thank you for these stories in Egypt and the plagues, God. And Father, we just ask, Lord, that you would bless, that you would fill us with your spirit. And um, Lord, that, that we could um, just worship you, Lord, in our hearts. I pray for the men's retreat this weekend, Lord. I pray for the men that are going to go from this church, that it would be life-changing. I pray, Father, for the... Um, the men that are gonna that are coming there, and I thank you for this challenge that we put out, God, for for men to bring unsaved men. And God, as we preach the gospel, as we share Jesus with them, I pray that men would get saved and their lives would change, God. And Father, that that um, Lord, you would inspire and encourage the the men down there now that are supposed to be inviting um, unsaved people and and their friends. That God, that would happen, and that you would bring those, Lord, that that you've called, and that you would adding to the church daily those that are being saved in Jesus' name, Amen.